Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. Titus, chapter number three, and we're, we're talking about <clears throat> something that really reaches down beyond, you know, the politics of society. It speaks to an extent of why there seemingly is such a great disconnect in our side, and it really, uh, I marvel at the truth of it. Uh, it seems that our society has no limits of any morality whatsoever. And for those that have been around a while, you can look back and say, this wasn't that way when I was 20, or this wasn't that way when I was 30, etc. But it's growing into a way that is, um, in many regards, so distinct that it is noticeable beyond a generational difficulty or generational distinction. When I speak of a generational distinction, I'm talking about the distinction that would exist between a father and a son in their generations. Uh, you know, I can I vividly remember stories of uh, generational disconnect that my granddad had with his dad. His dad was born in the 1880s. Uh, my granddad was one of his younger children. He was born in the 1920s. And so there's a good 40 years there apart. And uh, my great-granddad, uh, you know, he didn't really care much for cars. Uh, he did, his life was far simpler. And when all of his boys came back from Europe and Italy in World War II, uh, they took him and his wife, their mother, uh, her name was Molly, they were going to take him on a ride, and he wouldn't do it. He, he didn't want to, mm -mm, that was just too much for him. So they took Molly, their mother, on a ride, and they hit 60 mile an hour. And she was so excited when she got back. She said, wow, we went 60 miles a second. And that was the fastest she'd ever been in life. But the reality is you and I don't even think about that much anymore. It's just the norm. But there was a time that was not the norm. That's what I refer to as a generational disconnect. Uh, the Internet is one. Um, it's amazing that I'll hear folks, particularly those older than me, and, and you can take this device here and give it to a six- or seven-year-old in a matter of days, weeks, hours maybe. They're zipping and zooming through it and figuring stuff out, and, you know, you're sitting here trying to do this number, or for some of you, you know, anyway. That's a little bit of a disconnect, too. But that's when we're talking about changes in society, we're not talking about a generational disconnect. We're talking about a shift of a worldview. When we speak of worldview, uh, the anthropological way to look at it is a cosmology view. Um, the idea of how you understand, perceive, and make decisions while you're interacting in life cosmology type of view. And it deals with a study of the cosmos, how you understand the structure and the orders of the world. There are a lot of ways to look at it. Uh, and that has been that way over, over the generations. For instance, uh, at the founding of our country in the 1700s, humanism really was the worldview that dominated the Western world, particularly deistic humanism. Uh, the idea that there is some type of creator God and uh, he has set things in motion, and he has equipped man with certain ideals. You might would resound in your head now the Founding Fathers, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Those are the ideals to which nature and nature's God has established. And to those, the end of a humanist would see a creator God and that it's to our extent to be the best human and therefore the best society and the best people we can do, and aspire 
from the human's perspective, to be the best that one can attain to. And that's why when you look at the Founding Fathers, many of them, I, I would really, from a historical and a theological view, question their relationship to the Creator, God, that they espoused. It's not the same thing as that they didn't understand biblical-type principles. Now, you take Thomas Jefferson, for instance. He was a man that understood a lot of biblical principles, but he's not a believer. Uh, he did not believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. Uh, if my understanding is correct, you can go look at the Jeffersonian Bible, and really it's just a Bible in which he has removed the, deist re uh, uh, the uh, references to deity of Jesus Christ. Many of them held in high esteem uh, the canticles and the, the proverbs of scriptures because they felt that there was a level of reviled truth which was a positive thing and influence upon humanity. And then you move really to maybe the late mid-1800s and really espousing at certain areas a high watermark and you have what's called secular humanism. So humanism, the same, the appeal of man to be the best that he can. The difference is one no longer acknowledges much to do with any of nature's God, God or nature's God. So it's secular, i.e. it's atheistic. But there were some things still that were important, even as many of us were influenced by a secular humanistic society in one regard. One is it's based on the discovery of science as chief, as a naturalistic philosophy. Second, uh, we spoke of this, that it has a dedication to reason and truth. So there is some type of adhered truth. There cannot be multiple levels of truth. However, there can be different understandings of truth, and how to come to that is by having well-meaning, well-gifted individuals debate. Let me say something quickly. Have you noticed, this is just, I, I don't mean to veer into this, but have you noticed that debates no longer sway people today? Now, there are reasons that politicians at times might want to withdraw themselves from debates. They don't feel like they're getting a fair shake. Okay. <clears throat> but the reality for most of my life, I can remember in middle school and such getting extra credit because I got to watch. I, you know, enjoyed it. But I watched Ross Perot and George W. Bush and Bill Clinton in the 1992 debate that they did. Uh, and that's what they're doing. There's a topic given. And each one of these individuals running, they're trying to convince people of the truths and the positions that they hold and the better job that they do and the ability to articulate to the people, what's the hope? The hope is they'll sway people from demagoguery in one sense to cast a ballot for someone other than they wouldn't. And, I, you know, I, I think about Ross Perot, 17% of the popular vote. It's, it's only been done one other time in American history where you had a third-party candidate not affiliated with the two main parties to take such a large portion of the electorate. Now, surely there were underwriting reasons for that, but debate. And it's, it's interesting, in our recent election, I don't think there was a gubernatorial debate. And it wasn't much of a senatorial debate. Interesting thing that that is the shift of our society. Why? Because in this worldview, there's no dedication to reason. Ready? Truth is not soul anymore. There's not one truth. Everybody has a truth. Why? Because it's based on anything you want to base it on. The final thing of a secular humanist we looked at is there's a consequential ethics system. What do you mean? If you do evil, that should be punished. If you do good, that should be applauded. 
Now, I'm not suggesting that in a humanist worldview or a secular humanist worldview that everything was perfect. And I think that's a thing that you have to keep in the forefront of your mind. Uh, one of the preachers said this during a preaching conference. One thing about the good old days is they weren't as good as you sometimes remember them to be. I think, I think that's the truth in many regards. There was still immorality. There was still wickedness. But what we're really addressing is a shift in the worldview. And without going back and reteaching one of the lessons, some of these are online and you can, you can catch up quickly to us. That's why I've tended to just follow one handout. But when we speak of a pagan society, we're speaking of a society in which really it falls back into the ancient evil of the Garden of Eden. In fact, it is perhaps the religion upon which all other religions is based. Paganism has in it the idea of oneness. In Genesis, he says, ye shall be as God. There is therefore the pursuit to deconstruct everything. And now that's very prevalent in society, is it not? We've got to deconstruct our fates and deconstruct truth and deconstruct genders. Um, dozens of genders that exist, we've got to deconstruct all of that. That's right out of the pits of hell. Why? Because all of the constructs that often exist in a society, or let me say this, the constructs which you can perceive exist, male and female, family unit, you know who put those into motion? The God of the universe. If you have to deconstruct them and take them apart, if you'll excuse my commonness and bluntness of language, then that ain't got nothing to do with God. It's paganism. There's a position, if you will, or a pursuit perhaps of, of spirituality, but a resistance to anything of truth, paganism. There's a progressive view of action. Um, in a pagan society, self-expression, self-affirmation, no discrimination, tolerance, they have to be the new normal. And of course, that's the exact way it was during the times of Noah when God saw the wickedness of man that it was great. The final essence we gave you of pagan society is there's a permeation of fantasy. The scripture talks in Genesis chapter 6 about every imagination of their thought was continually evil. I mean, this is the society that was, and it feels an awful lot today like it's the society that is. And so the question then comes in, what do we do? If this is the pagan society, if we are submersed in this, what am, what am I supposed to do about it? Now, some would have an idea, and I'm to your notes, that you have that you need to fight the culture war. The fact is, any adherence to truth will bring, no doubt, conflict with any culture. Uh, let me go back and say this. When the Jeffersonian era, the early 1800s, in the midst of the, fa the, the fading uh, deistic humanism that had dominated the latter part of the Dark Ages... When, when they were in their throes, do you think they never came in conflict with Bible-believing Christianity? Of course they did. Of course they did. Keep in mind, Patrick Henry, Jefferson, all of these individuals, you know where many of them came to, pre to prominence in society? They were lawyers. They came to prominence over legal court matters dealing with the freedom of religion. In the colonies, in the days of the 1700s, the late 1700s, 
You have state religions that dominate nearly every colony. There were people, and I'm talking particularly of the southern colonies, that were in prison that would believe right close to what you believe. In the colony of North Carolina in particularly, if you were not Anglican, then your children could not get birth certificates. You know what that means? They couldn't vote and they couldn't own anything. If you had a birth certificate and converted and then tried to get married and wanted to get married apart from the Anglican church, they would give you a wedding certificate. Or what do they call it? A wedding um, marriage license. You didn't have the same liberty of others just because of your belief and how you lived your life according to those biblical worldviews. You couldn't really own property, and therefore, if the territorial governors wanted to take your possessions, they were free to do so. You had to pay a double tax. You had to pay the tax that all the other inhabitants of the colony of North Carolina did, but in addition, you had to pay a 10% tax to the Anglican Church, despite the fact that you didn't go there and didn't want anything to do with it. It's many of these humanists that rose to preeminence defending individuals and saying this isn't right. Biblical worldview, Bible-believing Christianity, is always in conflict with the culture of society. It's always a matter of how great the conflict is. And that's what you see today. Now here in Titus chapter 3, the great view to, to think about this and to consider is, all right, what do I do if I'm in this pagan society? What am I supposed to engage myself in? And the reality when you look at Titus the society that is described by which Paul was going to leave Titus in Crete, chapter 1, it reminds you very often of a pagan society. You can find that in verse number 12, where he says they're liars, evil beasts, and slow bellies. And so we've been looking at this a couple weeks ago. We looked about the first thing to do, these first couple of verses. And I should say there's four mandates. And each of these mandates that's given in Titus chapter 3 have uh, seven points, attitudes, descriptions that underscore each of these mandates. So two weeks ago, we're looking at you recognize your position, and there's seven things that Paul, through inspiration, leaves for us in Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. Uh, he talks about us being subject, being obedient, ready for good work, speaking no evil, not a brawler, gentle, and showing meekness. And for the detail, again, you can get the recording of that. Then last week, we looked at this. The second thing to keep in mind is not only uh, those first two verses of uh, recognizing our position, but we had the responsibility of remembering our prior state. I think this is so important. Remember what God brought you from. And remember that if he had the power to bring you from darkness into his marvelous light, and if he is the God that does not change and his hand is too, not too short that it cannot save, there's hope that someone else can call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. There's hope that there can be a dynamic, divine change in the heart of an individual. And if there is a dynamic, divine change in the hearts of one, perhaps there will be in the hearts of many, which will directly and have the greatest impact on any society, not the least as a pagan society. This morning, I want to look at our next segment of verses, beginning in verse number four and five. And, and I want to give to you a third thought to thrive in the pagan society. We've got to realize our peculiarities. Now, I, I'm not directly talking about weirdness. I guess 
I guess all of us have some idiosyncrasies about us and things that we do or don't do, but I'm, I'm talking about the salvation that God has provided. Now, for the sake of focus, look, if you will, in Titus 3 and verse 3. For we ourselves, or sometimes, if you write in your Bible, you circle that, sometimes, it doesn't mean infrequency. He's referencing a historical event, that there was a time in your life prior to right now when you exhibited these seven vices, uh, disobedience, deceived, foolish, etc., then he goes on and he lists these seven vices, foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers, lust and pleasures, living in malice, envy, hateful, and hating one another. Now verse 4. That's what you were. That's what God saved you from at your prior state. By the way, that's the same state of those that live in this society. It's the same state of those that lived in a secular humanistic society. It's the same state of those that lived... In the dawn of the deistic human age that flew right out of the dark ages, it's the same state of any culture, of any society, of any people dating clear back to the Garden of Eden. Ye were once these things. Now notice the promise. Perhaps one of the most potent verses, words I should say in all the dictionary, verse number four, but. I'm thankful for that word. I did not have to remain in that state. But after the kindness and the love of God our Savior towards man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, what has he done? Wow. By the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us, here's a great word, abundantly, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. What a positive consideration. Let's take some time this morning and realize these peculiarities. Peculiarities, I mean in a sense of God having particularly purchased us. Notice the first of these in verse number four. If you will, you can call these seven virtues. Notice these seven virtues that are here that describe the salvation that God provided. He says in verse number four, there's kindness and love appeared. You know, doesn't that set in a distinction, the interaction of humanity? I would not say that looking at society as a whole or even particular portions of society that really I could say they're kind but yet I can say that God is kind. I would not say that society expresses love one to another. I mean, I understand there's free love and there's fake love and all this kind of stuff that society might call, but in the reality of love being transcendent of self, I don't think that society is really the defining definition you want to use. The Proverbs tells us, that the righteous man regardeth the life of his beast. Do you remember the next part of that? But the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. They're cruel. You want to see a righteous man and an unrighteous man in behavior. These Proverbs, general wisdom applied. 
you could look at how they treat things in a sense that they should appreciate. The tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. You know, next month on the third Sunday, we'll have a Sanctity of Life Sunday, when we have for a number of years now. And that Sanctity of Life Sunday deals with the whole fact of it, it was uh, the third week in January in which Roe v. Wade was commemorated that, or I should say was established, that allowed for nationwide abortion. And of course now we sit this side of post Roe v. Wade, and if you live in Pennsylvania, you know what changed? Nothing. I'm interesting to get the statistics that have come out at the end of the year. I, I think Dolphin County's had roughly 30,000 abortions just in Dolphin County over the last many years, I think, is what, what the, the rate is. We're not the highest of them, but we're in the top five. And what amazes me to think of is, I wonder if that number's increased where folks could come to Pennsylvania. I, I imagine that it has. But, you know, there were abortions long before, in Pennsylvania, long before there were Roe v. Wade. Just, just up the road here. Where, where's that uh, community uh, used to mine all the coal and the fire happened? Centra just above Centralia is a little community, uh, Ash, Ash, uh, Ashland. Read an article last year about the butcher, the angel of death, the angel of Ashland, they called him. He was a family practice doctor, and he held a practice in Ashland for 40, 50 years, estimated that he himself performed over 100,000 abortions. Long before Roe v. Wade. Tender mercies of the wicked are. And they can sure make it sound justified, don't they? I'm amazed at the society today, folks, that calls evil good and good evil. I, I think about folks that even soon to be, he's our senator-elect now, but Mr. Fetter, Fetterman, you know, talking about he really is anti-capital punishment. So if you kill, you injure, mortally, gravely wound someone, one should not be placed on death row. That seems to me to be a tender mercy of the wicked. It's against biblical morality. But if you want to see the kindness of God, you want to see God's love appeared to you, think of how God described you in your lost estate. Now, he's told you your attitudes in chapter 3. Hold your finger or put a ribbon. I like ribbons. Put a ribbon there and look over in Romans chapter 5. <clears throat> what is it that God said about you before you became the child of God? 1 John chapter 3. Beloved, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. What a powerful sentiment. What was it that God saw? How did God see you prior to your salvation? And if you look at what God said and saw of you and compare it to what he was willing to give to you, you'll have a good understanding of what Titus 3 and verse 4 is saying his kindness and love appeared. It's one thing to do good to the innocent. It's one thing to reciprocate love to the lovely. 
But note in Romans chapter 5, if you will, look at verse number 6. For when we were yet without strength, the idea there, feeble, helpless. And that is man's extent in reaching eternal life. You'll burn yourself into a hole of the ground. You'll exhaust every fiber of your being and still have no ability of yourself to save yourself. He goes on in verse 6, In due time God died for the whom? God looked down, and I'm speaking in a manner of speech. He looked down on the ungodly world. He saw weak, wicked people. In the 14th and 53rd Psalm, he said they are altogether corrupt. Notice, if you will, verse 7. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet preadventure for a good man some would even dare to die. I didn't write this in my Bible when I think about that. I, I think about Memorial Day. I think that there are some good men when thinking of home and country, of children, of freedoms, paid an ultimate sacrifice so that others could live a life of freedom. Preadventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God did not see you as a good man. He saw you as a wicked sinner. In verse number 8, he uses that word, sinner. God commendeth his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, transgressors of his law. Let me give you one more. Look at verse 10. For if when we were what? This is the one that troubles me the most. God said, prior to my salvation, I was his enemy. I like to think about that way. I don't like to think about the fact that I was God's enemy, but that's what God said about me. I was aligned. You remember the Pharisees. They accused the Lord Jesus of being of the household of Beelzebub. And he said, your father's the devil. That's who your father is. That's true. Yeah, the devil was my daddy too. And my dad's dad. I was an enemy of God. The things I loved, God condemned. Remember Titus chapter 3 and verse 3? You were, you were pursuing in life, pleasures and lust. The things I thought I knew, foolishness. God said you didn't know anything. The truth I thought I embodied, I was a deceiver and full of deceit. Yeah, let me show you the kindness and love of God. Look in verse 16. I just really, I want to back down to verse 15. Four descriptions of what I was before salvation. I was ungodly. I was weak, I was a sinner, I was an enemy. Yet equally in this passage, you'll find four descriptions of God's kindness and loving. Look in verse 15. But not as the offense, so also is the what? Free gift. He uses the phrase the gift by grace later in verse 15. Drop your eyes to verse 16. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to the condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses and the justification. He mentions the gift of righteousness in verse number 17. 
And verse number 18, speaking even so by the righteousness of the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. You want to speak about the kindness and love of God? It's impossible to really consider it without getting a divine picture of how God saw you prior to your salvation. And that act of eternal kindness and love in a free gift. What'd you pay for your salvation? Nothing. I can even ask another question. How many of us got saved the first time you heard the gospel? There may be some. I am not in that group. I did not hear it the second or third or fourth or fifth or sixth or seventh or eighth or ninth or tenth time either. But in his kindness and love. How do I thrive in this? I realize the peculiarity, his kindness, the salvation he provided, his kindness and love appeared. I must for time's sake maybe speed up a little bit here, but let me give you the next one. Notice, if you will, not by works of righteousness, I'm in verse 5 of Titus 3, which we have done, but according to his what? I did not get what I justly deserved. Might I say the mercy of God is not the same as the mercy of man? The mercy of man says I want to set this individual free because I I might think that the judgment placed upon them is greater than they can bear. And the idea of setting them free means that perhaps no one now bears any judgment at all. That is not God's definition of mercy. God's definition of mercy is he paid your debt. He did not deserve your debt. He did not commit your sins. He should not have to bear the punishment of those sins. But he let you and I go. And what has he done? Isaiah 55. He has taken upon himself all our sins and transgressions. Listen, the move of the Holy Ghost, Paul wrote all five, six times there in Romans chapter 5, the gift, the free gift, the free gift, the free gift, the free gift, the gift, the gift, the gift. It's not the same thing as saying that it was free and no one paid for it. Jesus Christ died for the ungodly. This is his mercy. That's a peculiarity. The work that God has done in us, he's established your feet, friend, he has loved us. He indwells us. His Holy Spirit illuminates the path. I, I mean, so much of this that I have the Word of God. I love the Word of God. Uh, I read of the Word of God. Therefore, it becomes the worldview by which I make all decisions in life. That's not an accident. That's the mercy of God. Notice, if you will, in verse 5, and time will not allow me to unpackage all of this, but he says the washing of regeneration. Last night, did some laundry. I know you don't want to hear about it. But you know, you got to take those shirts and you got to get this little shout out and you got to. I learned a trick recently. Did you know on almost all these cleaning projects, you got to let them sit? All these cleaning things have a tendency to spray and wipe and then accuse whatever product I'm using of not being good enough. And you got to spray and scrub and then let it. You got to let it sit. I looked at the back of the bottle today. It said, spray onto soiled area. 
scrub to activate and wait. And I thought, boy, that'd be a great point in a message. The washing of regeneration. Scrub to activate. <laughs> the idea there, at the moment I, be, I got saved, folks, God restored unto me a fellowship that was lost by virtue of Adam thousands of years ago. And I came to him beaten and poor and undone. And there is then that process of sanctification, whereby he is going to create in me, through his divine work, by his mighty power, something that will bring him glory and honor. And it is a constant state where God scrubs to activate me. There is that future potential of what I one day will be in the presence of God when I am not in this body of flesh, when I am not in the presence of sin in this world. And, but right now the penalty is, is paid and, 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 and I'm walking in sanctification and truth and God is constantly changing me. The washing of regeneration. He uses another phrase here, the renewing, the renewing of the Holy Ghost. Listen to this, Romans 8, I'll just read it here. He said, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Uh, I think it's a dozen plus times you're going to find the word spirit referencing the Holy Spirit of God used in the 8th chapter of Romans. So how appropriate if we're talking about this point of the uh, the renewing of the Holy Ghost that you should look back into Romans chapter 8. Now note verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. And think of what Paul is saying here is the renewing of the Holy Ghost. I'm free. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. I'm free from guilt. I'm free from anguish. I'm free from evil. I'm free from bitterness. I am indeed most free. The renewing of the Holy Ghost. Notice again, he says there, verse number six, we could speak of his sacrifice. He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. I think of Peter referencing that through the foreknowledge of God, through the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, through the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. There is no salvation if there is not the shedding of blood. For with, the writer of Hebrews says, blood most things were made pure. For without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin. Then I come down to verse number seven, I am justified by his grace. Justified is a legal term. And only a justified one can proclaim someone. You cannot do that. It's a legal term. It has the idea of God, the Father in heaven, the just one, looking at you, seeing the holiness of God. He's taken his gavel and went, declared justified. I'm justified. If I were to die tomorrow... The righteousness of the almighty God imputed for me would be my saving hope. Then he comes to that last one, verse number seven. I, I got to be done. I'm getting, a, I'm getting a signal in the back. I'm a maiden heir. 
I'm made an heir. You know, you may not have much substance that was passed down to you in form of a legacy. Grandma might not have left you her millions. Granddad may not have left you his billions. Maybe your mama and grandma and your daddy and grandpappy couldn't even spell millions and billions. But you listen, in Jesus Christ, I'm an heir. I'm an heir of salvation. He'll not forget me. You know, that's the same hope, wasn't it, Job? I won't turn there. And but that James, Job talked about when, when the earthworms had come and his body was corrupt. He knew that still one day he'd stand before God. Man, to be an heir has at its invocation somewhere, the reality is remembrance. I'm not even a long-forgotten heir. I'm a well-remembered heir. Even the very hairs or lack thereof on my head, he is aware of. That's peculiarity. That's what you are to God if you are a child of God right now. And that's what this world, be it a pagan world system, secular humanist, humanistic of a deist flavor or whatever, whatever this society may be, will be, or shall be, they are not heirs of God. But you are. And this is going to set up the movement to the last chorus of this chapter. I now have a mission. And it is my mission, whether I'm in a pagan society or humanistic society, as an heir of God to you. Father. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126 541 Harrisburg, Pennsylvania 17112 and visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time.